This morning, what I wanted to do was take a new look or a, another look at a very famous story in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is the story of Moses and the burning bush. Many of you are familiar with this story. Uh, or even if you don't know all the ins and outs of it, you at least know that it happened. And many of you, if you're anything like me, would love for God to show up to us in a burning bush so we could know what it is that he wants us to do, right? Instead of kind of reading the tea leaves and trying to figure things out, legitimately knowing uh, and being able to follow. Hopefully by the end of our time together in this story this morning, we will discern that God shows up in burning bushes to us way more often than we expect and way more often than we're aware of. It's that our eyes are blinded to what he's doing around us. So Exodus chapter 3, Moses in the burning bush. Here's the story. Uh, Just to give us context, Moses, who was uh, higher up in the Egyptian uh, monarchy, uh, has been uh, cast out. Uh, He's he's killed a man kind of in, in protecting the Israelites. He's driven out into the wilderness, basically left to die and yet is uh, rescued by God kind of through Jethro. Uh, And ultimately, uh, he's going to marry his wife Zipporah, who's Jethro's daughter. Jethro gives him a job kind of shepherding herds. And this is where we find Moses in his new reality in Midian. Uh, It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God here at this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say, This God of yours has sent me. And they asked me, Well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. And God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, this land flowing with milk and with honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you shall say to the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which she will put on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the story of God meeting Moses spectacularly at the burning bush. And yet, I think sometimes when we read this story, we are so focused on the gravity of the moment, this dynamic appearance and manifestation of God, that we miss some really critical details about who God is and what he's asking of Moses. And so I just want to take a little bit of a deeper look and see some of the things that are truly going on at this story of Moses in the burning bush. The first thing I think that we see is this reality of the presence of God at the burning bush. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. Well, let's see two things that are going on here that I think are critical. The first thing that we realize about the presence of God at the burning bush is that God came down to Moses, right? And this is no small thing. This is not something that we should easily overlook. In fact, it is always true of God that he is pursuing his people even when they are not pursuing him. Moses is not on a journey looking for God. He's tending the flock, and God comes to him. He doesn't get to the mountain and yell down for Moses to come up the mountain. He comes down from the mountain. He descends from the mountain. Moses does not go to him. And two things are starkly true from this story and from the whole of the scriptures, and that is that we cannot go where God is, right? Remember the psalmist who says, who can climb the holy hill of God? And the answer the psalmist wants us to give, because he knows it's true, is no one. We're in trouble. And yet in that psalm, and here in this story, we have a God who doesn't stand up there and say no one can make it. Instead, he descends the mountain to pursue his people. And here it is again. Moses is not looking for God. God is looking for Moses. And he's looking for his people. And we'll see in a minute, he's looking for the restoration of the whole world, not just Moses. And this story goes on and on throughout Scripture, right? Remember when the Israelites finally come back into the land and finally when uh, When Solomon builds a temple for God, it says that that God descends from...
from the mountain, right, and goes into the temple, the holiest of holy places, that is, God descends to live amongst his people. This is the whole kind of structure and reality of the Old Testament temple, that God would come down and dwell with his people. And of course, maybe you know where we're heading, that the ultimate reality of God coming down from the mountain to be with his people is Jesus himself. This is why the incarnation is not just a add-on to the beginning of the story of the cross and the resurrection. It is an equal part of the gospel to the cross and the resurrection. Without a God who will come down, there is no rescue for humanity. And so we don't simply see that we can't get there. We see the heart of God that he would descend for us and for Moses. And I love that it happens at a burning bush. For us in this day, we think of that and think, my goodness, this is huge. Imagine if a burning bush showed up. But scholars will alert us to the fact that in that day, in that situation, in that environment, this would not have been that odd of an occurrence. Whether from the plant's oils or from the, the topography of the, of the circumstances of the, of the setting, these things would happen. What was odd about it is, and it tells us right in the story, that it didn't burn up that it kept burning. But there's something in that, isn't there? Something in the everyday reality of life. Even as ordinary as a burning bush for a shepherd, that God appears in these things to grab our attention. You know, for a church that meets in a school, this is good news, right? That God is in the ordinary, not in the extraordinary. That he doesn't just come to ornate sanctuaries, he comes to elementary schools and YMCAs. And he dwells amongst his people and he speaks to them. This is our God. This is the God who loves us, who relentlessly pursues us, who enters right into the narrative of our stories to grab our attention. And that's the second reality of God's presence is that he is desperate for our attention, right? Desperate for our attention. We have a dog. Uh, Some of you know Sophie. Uh, She is now what we like to call an old lady dog. And uh, she's advanced in years and she's much more particular. But she still, and if you come over and visit, you will have experienced this. She's desperate for attention, Anyone new that shows up, she's at them. She's barking. Uh, She's scratching at their legs. She's doing anything she can because her favorite thing is simply to be stroked, right? And if you make the mistake of doing it, you'll probably have to do it the rest of the night because she will demand your attention. Now, not that I want to equate the God of the universe with old lady dog Sophie, but in the same way, God is really desperate for our attention, not for his own self-sustenance, but because of a true and utter love for us. And so God comes in a fire that is persistent, a bush that is not consumed so that Moses will turn away. You know what's interesting about this story? It really could have turned out that Moses decided to pass it on by, right? How many things have you passed by in your life that caught your eye and you thought, well, I got this other thing to do, you know? I've literally passed by a house on fire. That happened to me one time on the way home from work. 
I kept going because there were sirens coming this way, and I knew that was being taken care of, and there was no place for me to turn off, right? So who knows? But how many things do we pass by? Moses really could have passed by. Who knows what time of day it was? Who knows when Jethro was expecting him back? Who knows any of these things? Moses could have passed him by. And in that, we see something about the nature of God's love for us, I think. And that is that God is compelled to love us, but he does not push himself on us. Right? So that, is that God doesn't force us to love him. There are many people in our world who think, well, if God's the God of the universe, why doesn't he just make everyone love him? Because that's not love. That wouldn't be love from him towards us, and it would never be love from us towards him. In fact, in the kind of charged political world that we have, we have good examples right now, right? That forced acts of love on people is what is equated to rape or assault. And this is not God. God is desperate for a true and reciprocal loving relationship. And so he comes and descends and he dwells amongst us and he's persistent in his pursuit and desperate for our attention, but yet doesn't force himself on us. But Moses does turn aside. Uh, It says he goes over, the, the better literal translation is that he turns aside. This is Hebrew language for literally changing your course of direction, right? He steps off his path and pursues a new direction. And he goes over and he finds something powerful and something dynamic and something obviously divine. But it's an act of faith for Moses, right? Certainly God is doing something in Moses' subconscious and in his conscience. He's pulling him not just through the visible symbolism of the burning bush, but also in his spirit. He's directing him over this way. But Moses has to make a volitional choice to change his direction, to go over, to step out of the order and the pattern of his life and pursue something different. And I, friends, I wonder, right? Like, Because our lives sometimes are on autopilot. We know our schedules. We know our directions. We know the things and how they go. And perhaps some of the reasons we miss burning bush realities is because we fail to turn aside to God. Right? That we're not willing to make the sacrifice of time or space to pursue a God who is relentlessly pursuing us. That when Moses turns aside, as simple as it might seem to investigate, he is, in fact, acting in faith. A burning bush for us could be a conversation, it could be a friend. It could be emotions, right? For many of us, especially German people like me, we're taught to squelch emotions and keep operating, right? Keep going on. But sometimes God speaks powerfully through our emotions. That doesn't mean that you simply act on your emotions, but it begins meaning that you begin having conversations with God and with others you trust about the emotions that you're feeling so you can get to the root and the source of them, because sometimes there's a burning bush reality in there. There's a God who's wanting you to turn aside, to give him time and space so he can speak to you. That most of the times that God intends to speak to you probably won't happen in a church gathering. They probably won't happen at the top of God's holy hill. 
They'll probably happen on an ordinary Wednesday in the middle of your routine, right? They'll probably happen on your drive home from work. Or for me, you've heard me tell you this all the time, when I'm mowing the lawn, right? Which is incredibly frustrating because I hate mowing the lawn, and yet routinely I hear from God when I'm mowing the lawn. What would it mean for us to have the faith when something ordinary yet pulling us is different, that we would turn aside and pursue the God of the universe who is pursuing us all the days of time. When Moses turns aside to God, he hears two things powerfully. And really we can summarize it into one thing, but let me say two things. The first is he hears a God who calls him by name. This is fascinating, right? You remember the story up to this point. Moses has no connection with this God. Right? He's raised Egyptian. He finds out his heritage, all of these things, but he's no real connection with this God. He's not seeking this God, and yet when God comes down from the mountain to find him, he calls him by name. But did you notice, not just by name, but he doubles his name. And this is important because in the culture of the day, to double something is to increase its intensity. Remember when Jesus really wanted to tell people that something was important? Remember what he would say? Truly, truly, I say to you. We're like, we get it, Jesus, right? You know, truly, truly, he's saying this is important. When God says, Moses, Moses, he's taking that intentionality and intensity and placing it in relational structure. That you, Moses, are important to me. Do you see it? He says, Moses, Moses. When you turn aside to God, you find a God who doubles your name. I think this is fantastic. That the God of the universe not only knows your name, but he doubles it. That he sees in his relationship with you that kind of relational intensity and importance to him. And then the words that he speaks to Moses are the words of the gospel. And this should not surprise us, right? He says, I am going to send you to Egypt to rescue my people. I'm delivering them through divine power and action back into this land that God has promised, this life that he has promised for his people. This is the message of God. When you turn aside to God, this is the message that you hear from God. His divine rescue of you and of the world. He doubles your name. Because he loves you, and he reminds you of what he's doing in the world. I love not just the message, but the symbolism that's going on in this story. Because really what's happening is in many ways a narrative reversal of the Eden story. right? Because all of a sudden you have a, a, a God approaching his created humanity... And humanity standing in front of God, and it says of both Adam and Eve in the garden story and Moses here, that they're terrified. Remember? But something very different is happening in these stories. Adam and Eve were terrified because judgment was coming. Moses is terrified, but on the heels of this, restoration is coming. Do you see it? That in Moses, as the leader of Israel, is a whole new Adam, a whole new people of God that are coming to once again dwell with God. Moses steps right into the very presence of God unknowingly, and yet God does not cast him away. Moses is just as unclean as Adam was. 
God is doing something dynamic in this story. And then look a little bit closer. What is this whole angel of the Lord that's happening in the middle of this fire? Right? Do you ever stop and think about this? The angel of the Lord is the one doing the talking. And he's happening in the fire, and this is weird. What I would suggest to you is it's not weird. You have really two conclusions, and you have three conclusions. I think the third one's not the best one. The third conclusion is, well, it's an angel of God. It's a messenger of God. I think that's not a good conclusion, because when Moses bows down, and when God says it's holy ground, none of that is corrected, right? An angel would say, don't, don't bow down to me. I'm not God. This happened elsewhere in Scripture. So you're left with one of two things. Either it's the presence of God in there, or by distinguishing as an angel of God, what's really happening there is the existence of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And this, I think, is the right answer. God is always, is often, not always, spoken of as a consuming fire. You've heard that language, right? Who can, who can be in the consuming fire of God and not be consumed? It's Jesus. And there it is, right in front of all of us in the opening chapters of this Exodus story. That is that Jesus mediating between God and man, enabling them to be close, and announcing the rescue of God's people that's happening. Long before it even happens in its fullness in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. As the story goes on, Moses will enter into the covenant through circumcision through the aid of his wife, Zipporah. Whereas Adam and Eve together were complicit in their rebellion, Moses and Zipporah are together complicit in their obedience towards God. And the story is being reversed. And I love what God tells Moses to tell the elders of Israel to say to Pharaoh. Did you catch this? He said, just tell Pharaoh that we're going to take a three-day journey. Right? (laughs) Did you catch that? Like, just tell Pharaoh, we're we're just going to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to do what? To worship God. What does God want the people to know? Always. That the only response to the rescue of God is the worship of God. And the reason that God demands the worship of his people is because it's through a worshiping people that the nations will worship God. Right? God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you'll bless the nations. God says to Abraham, he says to Isaac, he says to Jacob, he says to his people, in your worship of me, the worship of the nations will be Sparked, And so in this small story of the burning bush, we see not only God's heart for Moses, but his heart for all of Israel, and even more than that, his heart for the world. So what does the burning bush mean for you and me? Four things, count them four. Here we go. The first thing is, you must make time and space to turn aside to God. You do not know what is happening in the burning bush unless you go investigate. You will sometimes find out that you've detoured for nothing, right? Because we're human and we don't know how to read all of this stuff. Sometimes there'll be a conversation or a tug on your heart to go one way, and you'll go over there and it's kind of a dead end, and that's okay. We walk by faith. But when you turn aside and make space for God and when you encounter him, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in your uh, personal liturgy or, or time spent with God, both of which are critically important, 
but in your everyday, what you begin to understand is that there is, listen to me, there is no such thing as a sacred and secular divide. You hear me? The world, the, the church, not the world, the church has taught us, and it really was a, a rise out of fundamentalism who was scared uh, of the culture of the world, that there are certain things that are sacred and there are certain things that are secular. And yet it totally misses the point that the whole world is God's. Everything is sacred. Humanity misuses a whole lot of things that are sacred, right? Life is sacred. Culture is sacred. Human advancement is sacred. Our work is sacred. Not not just mine, because I'm a pastor. Yours. Because you're teachers and architects and homemakers, and, and, and all everything. That everything that we do is sacred in so much as it is done in submission to the creator of the universe. And when we begin to order our lives this way, what we, can, what we will find is that these burning bush experiences are way more frequent than we would have ever assumed. Because most of us live in a secular view of the world, that we step out of on Sundays to come meet God, right? And yet the Bible seems to tell me that God is relentlessly pursuing you. Like Monday morning when you're struggling to get out of bed, he's pursuing you. Like Thursday night when you're like at your wit's end with your kids, relentlessly pursuing you. Like Friday when you're two days behind your deadline, relentlessly pursuing you. That in the most mundane things of life, the opportunity for God to show up to make regular spaces holy places is not just possible, but I would suggest to you quite probable. Learn to turn aside and seek the face of God. Second thing is this. When you hear from God, God is careful to do two things, right? He's careful to remind you of the gospel. And then I think almost always, if not always, careful to remind you that you are being sent to let other people know about the gospel, right? He says, hey, Moses, 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 I love you. I love you. I've pursued you. I've come down the mountain for you. I've embraced you. Here you are. Uh, And this is true. This rescue is true not only for you, but for all of Israel. Now I need you to go tell them. Because if you don't go to Egypt, who's going to tell them? Right? And so the same is true for us, that we are called to take this message of life and freedom that is announced to us through Jesus descending from the mountain to be with us to the world around us. And you, like me, are probably prone to give answers like Moses. Well, they're going to ask me all kinds of theological questions, God. I don't have the answers to that, so let's start with your name, right? And I love the name that God gives Moses because it's almost like a sarcastic answer. I like when God gets sarcastic because I kind of, I get that, you know. He's like, I am who I am. And most of us are like, oh, I am who I am. I sometimes read that like, dude, I am who I am. Go do what I told you to do, right? Like, I heard one, one scholar say it this way. And he, I'll tone it down a little bit. His answer was, God's answer of I am who I am to Moses was basically like saying it's none of your business, right? That you're asking questions that aren't important. Who I am is I am here, right in front of you. I've descended the mountain. I'm here in this divine embrace of you. 
I've heard other scholars say what I, when he says I am who I am, it means I am everything, right? In other words, that I am all-powerful. And Louis Giglio famously says when God says I am, he's also reminding Moses that he is not, right? And I think that's powerful, right? What you need to know is that I am. Well, you keep telling me you're not, that's true, but I am, right? And for many of us, we get stopped at these theological questions, assuming that we're going to be pinned against the wall. And God says, go, tell people about a God who doubles their name and who's come down from the mountain to offer rescue and life. Of course, Moses will go on to say, well, I don't know how to talk. I'm terrible. I have a speech problem. I do all all these other things. We, We do this the same thing too. And yet, when we take the continued step of making the gospel known to the people around us through word and through deed, through invitation into what God is doing, what we find is the dynamic and divine power of God going before us and being the I am where we are the I am not. Last two things are kind of the same thing, and that is that I would suggest to you that God might be using you, and he might be using this congregation as burning bushes. That for the people at your workplace, for the families and people who live in your neighborhood, for your family and circle of friends, could it be possible that you are the burning bush? that you are the one who's ordinary and present, but yet different. Right? Consumed by God, living life a different way, oriented in a different direction. Could you be the means by which God is trying to get their attention? To turn aside and check something out. And then could you be, as Peter would write to his readers, ready to answer when they turn aside. And I think you know that my answer to that is, I think you are. (laughs) And I think that this congregation is that for this city. We're not the only one. There's other fantastic churches in the valley and, and in this city, and we praise God for that. But God has called us to, in some way, be a burning bush. Come down off the mountain, not religious, being where people are, engaged in regular, casual, and and calling people into something, but yet being different, being ordered towards God instead of towards this world, being a bush that is burning but not consumed, that is calling people over. I love the burning but not consumed because basically what it's talking about is faithful presence. I get the impression that if Moses had stood there and stared at the bush for three days, it would have continued to burn. And if he had gone over three days later, God would have given him the same message that he gave him then. There's this idea of faithful gospel presence. And we talk about this a lot here at Hope. That in our continuing post-Christian world where people are walking away from organized Christian faith, as it were, because of all the failures of past generations, one of the greatest ways that we can be the the witness that God demands us to be is that we be faithfully present, burning but not consumed, and calling people over 
and then ready as a congregation when people turn aside to point them not to a church, not to a religious liturgy, but to a God who in Jesus has come down from the mountain, who doubles their name, and who announces rescue to them. Friends, that's why we're here. That's why we're going to do what we're going to do later this afternoon. That's why we're going to do what we do next Saturday afternoon, passing out ice cream. It's why we're going to launch out on the uh, next Sunday. It's why I'm asking you to invite people into it. Because I do believe that God has called us here in Bethlehem and our other congregation in Nazareth to be what we like to call gospel outposts. Here in the community, not far off, flavored and textured by the gospel, by God himself. A fire, but present, not consumed. Calling people over where they can hear about a God who doesn't judge them from the high and lofty mountains, but who has descended the mountain that could not be scaled because he has doubled their name. And he has done for them all that they need to experience the fullness of life, a land flowing with milk and honey. Can I pray with you?